Field Notes, Take 3. Hi, this is Cliff Crego with another picture-poems.com in the circle in the square field notes report. It's about the end of uh, June 2017, and I'm in round numbers. I'll do everything to simplify it in round numbers. I, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, whitebark pines and climate crisis and touch a, a little bit perhaps on the more philosophical aspects of extinction in the new geologic era, the Anthropocene. Well, as I said, I'm at about 2,300 meters. It's um, about 50% uh, cloudy, but otherwise a beautiful uh, Oregon day. There's hardly a breath of wind. And there is, I've uh, written about this in other places, a bit of smoke in the air, even at this altitude. Normally, with high pressure, it's... Uh, there's a slight inversion that's keeping most of the particulates from the wildfire smoke uh, much lower in the valley. But it's hazy up here, and if you're doing photography work like I am, uh, the smoke season uh, begins uh, right around the 4th of July. And it can continue all the way through on to Alpine Fall into October. Of course, there'll be some days that are better than others. But it's very, uh, very noticeable. And I'm up here uh, totally off-grid, so no radio or anything. So um, I can only guess where the smoke is coming from. And it was um, uh, from a short distance, close up, um, viewed close up. The winter uh, uh, was uh, a fairly good one, a, a fairly good snowpack, and a few weeks of um, down to minus 20 C up at this altitude. And, of course, that would be the climate norm over the past uh, 100, 200,000 uh, years or so, that we would get weeks at this altitude with minus 20, minus 30 C. And, uh, and I'll mention that uh, straight off, is that a cold snap like that, I'm seated comfortably in the shade here. <laughs> Let me mention this first. Next to the, it's official, I uh, send it out on the different websites repeatedly. This is the Dave and Sue Clemens record holder, white bark pine with a girth, if I remember right, it's more than six meters. So it's the biggest, officially the biggest. I think that was uh, designated that all the way back in 1986. So it's shading our little field notes uh, report. And it's magnificent in every way. And um, quite healthy. 
you can tell up here, uh, white bark pines, Pinus albicaulus, that um, the white bark, what we're looking for is a full crown of vibrantly green, shiny, five-needle bundle uh, pine needles. And this one is probably, you know, it's kind of like, uh, oh, a good uh, 70 to 80 percent full. So it's doing quite well, relatively. But where we're at here is a good 1,700 meters or so above the nearest uh, community, above. Um, I have an, uh, the Picture Poem office, you're welcome to visit anytime, is due south of here. And of course, with first do no harm, we came up here entirely on foot and uh, bike, a lot of it push bike. So it takes days uh, to get up to this altitude. And you're never going to forget it. But it's a uh, meditation, natural history discipline I wouldn't want to live without. I wouldn't want to forego. Because each step, in a way, we're going up into mountain treetown. We're in official wilderness. Bless the gods for that. Imagine trying to pass, as happened in 1964, the Wilderness Act right now in such a divided, polarized America. It's hardly thinkable. But this is wilderness. And there's no way on God's good earth that they can take this away from it. So it, it has the most protected status of any of the um, common ground in North America. There's nothing quite of that stature other than a national park in the Alps. Well, so it's roadless. And there's almost zero probability of encountering anyone here because we're way off the trails. And believe it or not, it is unfortunately grazed nearby. But because there's still quite a bit of snow, they normally won't come up here until uh, uh, deep into July. And then they have to leave by September. So there are traces of barbed wire that's down now to keep it from getting squished by the snow. Every snowpack up here is about three meters or so continuous snowpack running from, oh, say about, um, it won't be that deep the end of uh, November, but it will be continuous all the way through right about now. And that's the climate average. But now there's only about 20% 20, 20 snow left right here at 23. So I'm, 
It's a flat, rocky, now spring vernal green shoulder in which I'm sitting, and it's a, a basalt uh, rock type. And it was, of course, glaciated uh, starting 20,000 years ago, ending 10,000 years ago. So the soil we're sitting on is magnificent. It always makes me think of the Alps. It's been building for 10,000 years. And, um, well, it's an extremely complex topography. When I first got here nine years ago to do field work, photography work, and writing, coming from Fargo, North Dakota, so it took me a long time on a bike with all my gear. So I go real slow. It's a mountain bike with about 60 kilos of gear, and it's all set up for climbing and backpacking, sometimes for snowshoeing and skiing. So with that much gear, you're going slow, but that's fine. And uh, the whitebark pine decline is one of the first things I noticed after being away from this part of North America for a number of years. And it hit me first at Glacier National Park. And I'd never seen anything like it. Um, it's basically there a skeleton forest. Now, this is supposed to be more natural historical that uh, field notes report. So what is causing this decline or dieback or collapse or even potential, um, to use that word, uh, extinction? at least in certain areas of its habitat. White bark pine, what is causing that? Well, it's well documented that in Glacier, which is a sister range from here, if you go on foot or bike, it takes me about 20 camps to get there, and you'll never forget it. If you go by car, <laughs> you will have no idea that they're interconnected, but they really are a part of... Uh, one whole landscape. Well, the white barks there were hit by uh, white pine blister rust, which was uh, it's an introduced pathogen. It's about has about a hundred year history of spreading throughout North America, and I don't want to go into the details, but it was devastating where it did, uh, the, all the five needle pines, so it affected white pine as well. And that's evidently uh, what uh, decimated the, um, the white barks in glaciers. So that's northeast of here, of the Wallawas in the Eagle Cap Wilderness. We're right now on the south side of the Wallawas. I don't know if you can hear that. That's a uh, another robin. And they're year-round residents up here. I've been following the symbiont of the whitebark pine, the close collaborator. Whitebarks are the only pine that has pine cones which do not open 
And up here, you can easily recognize them because uh, once you get an eye for the silhouettes. Because right where I'm sitting, there are only three or four um, types of tree. It's still marvelously complex because of the geometry and the distribution and everything. So it's not in any way impoverished or simply simple just because of three uh, genera. We have the spruce, which has a, uh, it's a very narrow but open, much more narrow than the spruce, the Norwegian spruce of the Alps. And because uh, they're historically so important for music, I like to call them fiddle-top spruce. It's in the Alps. They would harvest the wood in the dead of winter with full moon, and that would eventually make it all the way down to Italy for the uh, resonant sounding board tops of the Stradivari violins. Think of that. So we have a few spruce here. And then by far the most common is a very narrow, very elegant, I call them spire firs. Lasiocarpa, obvious Lasiocarpa, officially subalpine fir, kind of an unfortunate name. And they share the space with a much, much more uh, large and it has kind of an an egg shape form when it's mature. This record holder now, how old would it be? Now, with all due respect, they are fused at the root, so that's really two trees. And uh, don't forget, we were just talking about the nutcrackers. So it's the only pine cone that doesn't open. So the, the, the pines, the white pines, are dependent on the nutcracker to harvest its seeds. Think of that. And in turn, the uh, nutcrackers are in part uh, obviously uh, dependent on the white bark, so, although they can adapt. And if the white barks, heaven forbid, were to go totally locally extinct here, which is a possibility, but uh, uh, we can't see that far into the future, they're suffering here um, and in decline, but not nowhere near as uh, a dramatic a collapse as glacier. And there are reasons for that. Perhaps we'll go into them. But the the nutcrackers harvest the seeds and cache them. And uh, uh, so they have co-evolved in that way over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So to come into white bark space, you're coming into a very sacred, ancient, almost timeless, in human terms, space. So how old would this record holder be? Well, with this rambling field note, it's been a long day. <laughs> um... 
I'll put the great acceleration into oblivion of the Anthropocene poster I made three or four months ago. And it has a timeline uh, that goes from 1750 to the present. And it's written on the rings of a then recently um, cut and cross section, white bark pine, right about at this altitude. So I tried to select what I thought might be significant events in that uh, 260, 70 year history uh, from the white bark pine perspective. In 1750, well, obviously it would have said that was the death of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. And from there, it goes on. There are many interesting things and that I don't really want to discuss. But what's very pronounced is the Great Acceleration, which begins around the middle of last century, around 1950, where everything gets goes into almost an exponential sweep. It's a kind of runaway everything from the use of hydrocarbons um, to chemical pesticides to drawing um, the amount of nitrogen that's produced artificially. There are any number of key factors like that that go into this wild... Uh, uh, runaway, all at the same time. Well, from the tree's point of view, in just 20 centimeters of wood, of tree rings, humans have gone from 2 billion to now 7 billion plus. In just that 20 centimeters. And when I drew that curve on the... Uh, rings of the tree, I just couldn't believe it. So if I were a white bark pine, I would be concerned <laughs> to have that many. You wouldn't notice it up here because this place is almost never visited. Never. Think of that. There's no trail here and no GPS for where this tree is and it's rugged terrain. And, um, of course, uh, the white European settlement, that's all a very recent vintage. And it's snowed in most of the time. So from, oh, November through uh, the end of May at least, So it's basically a mosaic of those three fiddletop spruce, spire fir, and white bark pine. There's some lodgepole pine, but not many here. And uh, open, flat, rocky meadows. So back to 
the threats of the white-barked pine. There are basically three threats. So we have this white pine blister rust that was, which can easily kill the tree. It begins somewhere on just a branch, girdles the branch, works its way uh, towards the main stem, and once it girdles the main stem, you'll have a top kill. And unlike the other threat, the mountain pine beetle, I'll come to that in a second, uh, you'll have the top kill, which can eventually kill the entire tree, and it affects all ages. Like this tree is older by a long shot than the cross-section I'll put with this field note. It's probably guessing about 400 years old. And they can be much older than that, more than a thousand years old. And so their idea of time and space is totally different. And would this tree have been, no, not quite, but uh, when the glacier started to pull back here, 10,000 years, well, yeah, there were white bark pines here, and they would have... Uh, pulled back, if you see them not as a thing but as a movement, they would have gone into ice-free zones. So I'm looking at a very steep, rocky, granodiorite ridge that's about three, four hundred meters above this um, grassy meadow where we're sitting. You see, the ice wouldn't have touched those ridges so even together with the nutcrackers, they could have survived. They're adapted to deep snow and cold, windy conditions. They're the tree limit uh, species here. They go all the way to the top of the Wallawas, to in round numbers about 3,000 meters, and can easily grow above that. But that's where they top out here. So we have... If you draw them as circles, we have the circle of the white pine blister rust. And then we have the threat of the mountain pine beetles that in the Northwest has been much in the news the past 10 years and peaked around uh, 2012 with a pandemic. It affected all pines, not just the white barks. And an area mind-bogglingly 67, 67 times the size of Switzerland. I always use that as a kind of comparison. It's a huge area. And I, I've, I've only seen a, just a small part of it. But... The white barks, what's interesting, and here we're getting closer to climate crisis, are, have not uh, uh, evolved together with mountain pine beetle. The lodge poles have, and therefore um, are adapted to periodic outbreaks and have mechanisms like pitching when the beetle tries to a drill bore into through the bark and it's going to make uh, galleries uh, of different descriptions and kinds under the bark 
and uh, um, it has defense mechanisms that the uh, white barks do not have. And that's because, and this is the key fact, maybe of this whole little talk, is that they've always been protected by a wetter, colder climate up here. It's always been too cold for the mountain pine beetles. Well, that has now changed. So much so that uh, normally mountain pine beetles only have one um, cycle, life cycle event per year. But actually here the growing season is so long, so much longer and so much warmer that they can occasionally get through two seasons, two cycles a season. Think of that. So now decline. So I'm up here doing field work and what I do is basically do random walks. I just walk all day, three different sessions the whole day. And um, you're naturally drawn to a recent uh, loss. So they'll be, you'll see, I'm looking at them right here. Um, if they've been attacked by white pine blister rust, and I don't want to put a percentage on that, but a, a, a majority, certainly a majority of white bark pines are, have been affected by blister rust up here. In some areas, it's more than 60% or more. You'll see a, um, it's called a flag, so a rusty red uh, branch that has already died and is a sign that the blister rust is working its way down to the main stem. The mountain pine beetle kill is much more dramatic. The entire tree, um, after it's dead, turns a rusty, brilliant uh, red that you can see from a kilometer away. So you can easily glass the terrain and get an overview of what's going on. Not not so much for the blister rust, but for the mountain pine beetle. So those two threats. And, but my own view is that the hotter, drier climate is by far the dominant uh, factor in the decline, not just of the white barks, but of the entire alpine ecosystem. And um, I just do my uh, poet-scientist uh, uh, averages to give people an idea. The uh, snow line here, that means the altitude at which snow falls. Don't forget that's nonlinear. So all of a sudden you're going to go at zero C uh, from water to snow. Well, that's rising by two centimeters a day and an accelerating tempo or tendency. So it's following that curve that I'll post with this field note of the great acceleration into whatever. That's a question mark.
So how much has it warmed here over since the glaciers disappeared 10,000 years ago in that marvelous constant climate of the Holocene? Well, world average is now about in round numbers one degree C, but as I've often said in the past that the higher you go is like going north in altitude, uh, in latitude rather. And so up here, it's I would guess it's very close to what it is in the Arctic, that it's probably a two, three degree C warming has already taken place at altitude. I'm looking at a southwest-facing slope. It's very steep, or quite steep. And uh, it caught my attention the very first time I came to the Wogawas. I hiked through there, climbed up on the ridge, and was, I was scouting it out for skiing. This was in October. And there were two things I noticed. I had never seen alpine fleece flower before. That's, there's hardly a sign of it now because it's just coming out from under a snowpack that's a perennial that clicks in at about 1,800 meters. And it's uh, a polygonum, phytolacaceae. And I'd never seen such a strange alpine plant because it's so tall and leafy and a kind of dry foliage and... It was very strange to me, and it has a marvelous fall color that was very noticeable when I first got here. And the second thing I saw was a 300-meter-wide avalanche swath from that had occurred sometime 30-some years ago that took down uh, a large part of the whitebark forest. The ridge where that happened tops out at about 2,600 meters. Well, wouldn't you know it, that's right where a now uh, where an avalanche tragedy took, pla took place three years ago. Now, I don't want to talk about the details of that, but they did ski right down that avalanche swath. They weren't doing a traverse, they were going down. Uh, two dead and two severely injured, and it was a whole a major expedition to evacuate the people, because this is fairly remote, fairly rugged. And in North America, we're just not prepared for that sort of thing. It's nothing like in the Alps. But... Uh, um, Now, was that a climate crisis tragedy? You see, the snowpack is changing. I don't know if I want to talk about that yet. I was here, as chance would have it, with uh, David Page, a wonderful writer from... from... Um, Snow Magazine, Powder Magazine, excuse me, you can tell how much I read it, that uh, um, he was here researching the tragedy right after it happened. 
but it was summer. Right around now, right around summer solstice time, a little bit later. And our ways crossed, and we did some uh, research on what happened together. So how does that affect snowpack, the rising temperature? Well, there are any number of things, and it's affecting these pines. You see, this great, magnificent four or five hundred year old record holder of a white bark pine, I'm looking straight through it into the afternoon sun, and it's a very steep, rugged terrain, goes very steeply down. If you're skiing it, this is fairly safe here. I wouldn't expect avalanches. I would ski this under most conditions. But you're going to be jumping your turns. It's fairly uh, steep. And, well, within 50 meters, there are no white bark pines. That's it. They just click out. So whatever it is in their climate uh, makeup, they don't have there. So they're not going to grow down that low. That's very dramatic. So what you're going through, even on skis, it's better to do it on foot or snowshoes so you can really observe it. Every step you take, you're descending into a slightly different climate. That's how sensitive our atmosphere is. If you're lucky enough to have a old-style altimeter that's not based on GPS, but it's based on barometric pressure. Well, uh, a good one, well, you can walk up a, a meter and it will show you the difference. And that's based on the weight of the atmosphere above that instrument. Think of that. That's how sensitive. This life breath we call atmosphere, actually it is. So I can see going down about 300 meters below here. In the forest, is one thing I see is that the aspen, well, I call it click in. There are no aspen at this altitude. They're in a massive dieback too. <laughs> so I could be up here just talking about... Uh, you see, it's... That is truth, right, in reality. Where I take my camera lens and, and direct it, that becomes my window on a very limited reality, not truth. And so I can focus on certain aspects of that limited window to try to bring out what uh, I think I'm seeing. So it's learning to see at the same time. But at the same time, it's a deeper meditation on this whole problem of the relationship between reality and truth. Because there are deep philosophical questions here. And uh, that's where I wanted to go to with this great acceleration into oblivion in the problem of extinction to put out 
extinguished, that you put out a light. And when you lose something, like heaven forbid, these white black pines, then it's basically forever. Well, those aspen, they don't grow at this altitude, so that's climate. And since this is a field note and um, meant to encourage people to get out and walk the land, well, one thing that's very noticeable with wilderness is that people, if there are roads, they will drive until the sign says no road, regardless of the terrain. It makes no difference. So that whole day, four-day journey I had of getting up here with my push bike and then on foot backpack, well, you could skip a lot of that and drive your Jeep up as, how high can you, about 2,000 meters. So that's what people do. So they are totally clueless, <laughs> really clueless about um, um, the whole interval in between. So they have no idea where they're at. That's how this avalanche tragedy happened, because they snow machined up here. You see, I still don't want to talk about it yet. It hasn't been long enough. It's been a little bit more than three years. But it's building up sooner or later, and I've never met the lead guide, and I'd prefer to lead, meet the guide before I talk about it. But you imagine that, snow machining up here, so you would have no idea of snow conditions if you do that. But if you go on foot or skin up with skis, you'll know every centimeter of the whole route. And you'll see the strange things that this hotter, warmer climate is doing to everything, including the snowpack. So I'll end with that, that my condition is, is that the main stressor for white bark pines is for me, hotter, drier. I'm completely convinced of it. And if you had gone through what I've been through since the second week of May, I've been counting the number of dry, cold front, low pressure systems that have moved through. And if you're living out here in a tent, you're not, I just got through another two days of them. That's nonstop wind at night too. And no measurable really precip. So you're not going to forget it soon. And we've had the fifth one, I've named it. This is Emily. And uh, now it's the pressure is going up very quickly. And these winds are desiccating. So if I dig down in the soil where I'm sitting, um, if you were a seedling, you'd be having a hard time already. And there's still snow around. It's drying out very quickly. And it totally eats up snowpack, those winds. And so if they were saying 130%, 160% average snowpack, you see those numbers are extremely misleading.
So this place is still affected uh, by drought. And it has the potential for being a very dry, hot August uh, fire season again. And now we have this great acceleration. So if we've had a two, three degrees C increase, snow line, where the snow falls in the winter, going up. Now what that means, two centimeters a day, tendency increasing. What that means is that you get a much top heavier snowpack. And there are many implications of that. What I'm seeing around me is the result of a top-heavy snowpack. Well, that is going to just keep accelerating. And what makes it unpredictable is the amazing, breathtaking change to the jet stream, which should be front page news every day, every day of the year. And in a general way, that's being caused by a loss of the difference between the temperature at the equator with the temperature at the pole. So if you're teaching it to a child, it's the belly button to the top of the head, there's less of a difference. So in just very simple terms, that means less energy. So the river of air that I'm looking at moves more slowly, makes bigger meanders. And um, the borderline between north and south of those meanders is determined by temperature of the air and the velocity of the air, how fast it's moving. Well, we're getting the weirdest things happening if you're on the north side of that meander or the south side. Both extreme cold and extreme tropical heat but also the way the winds move, and that's what frightens me with these dry cold fronts that have been coming through. I've never seen them come in, and they come in with a kind of periodicity almost every week or so. So all of that is uh, new stuff. In those avalanche conditions they had with that tragedy three years ago, that was new stuff too. I had never, the Friday before it happened, I had never seen winds like that. They were absolutely fierce. And it was a sudden shift of the jet stream with winds coming out of the west-northwest, enough to take your uh, Everest-style two a wall $600 tent and just tear it to pieces. And so I skied out Friday late afternoon, not right from here, but fairly close. And by Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, it was horrendously dangerous avalanche conditions because of the wind. And that was a climate event in my opinion.
Well, that's enough about avalanches. And, but climate crisis, boy, this is the place to come to become aware of it. In extinction, the last word on extinction is that um, my own view, there are many excellent people worried uh, about the future existence of whitebark pines and to the point of their entire regeneration projects. There's genetic selection for white pine blister rust and I'm totally supportive of all these magnificent efforts. There are a lot of really great people working on it, especially in the Rockies. But uh, I, if I were a white bark pine, I would say, well, you people, people, I think they're a lot more concerned about us. I think the way that um, um, humans are behaving in terms not just of uh, in their response to climate crisis makes me a lot more concerned about human extinction than any other species. I don't want to put numbers on it, but it's much more likely that we'll do ourselves in before this magnificent tree is gone. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. I'll edit this talk down so it's not quite so long. Signing off for the picture-poems.com website. There's a whole mini website for whitebark pines. That's at picture-poems.com slash whitebarks. And it's where I composite everything that's publicly available, all the things we've talked about, um, online so that it's uh, easy to reference and study. And I update it peri periodically. Okay, that's it for now. Ciao for now.